We're traveling through Acts. We're in Acts 2, a very fun chapter. We'll go through it this Wednesday. I don't know if we'll get through the whole thing, but it's the birth of the church. Totally awesome chapter. Uh, we're going to take an idea out of it today and introduce the idea. Let me ask here, who has heard of Pablo Picasso? Right? Pretty well-known guy. He uh, had a painting that sold. His paintings don't sell very often. It sold a couple of years ago and it sold for $179 million. Even though it looked like Myron, my four-year-old, painted it. In fact, Myron would do a better job. I'll sell you his paintings for just a million. Give you a deal on them. And it was the highest painting that it ever sold at auction in 2015 when it sold. So very, very, very famous painter. Uh, if you took art 101, I took a lot of art classes in college. Some would say it was because it was an easy A. I plead the fifth. I just say I love art. And what they'll do if you took an art class probably in high school or even college is at some point they'll show you these paintings that Pablo Picasso did of a bull. Because he does something in these paintings that's real interesting. He strips down a bull to the very minimum requirements that still represent a bull. That you could take this to any culture at any time and they'd say, oh, that's a bull. All right, so if you haven't seen that, I have a picture of it. All right, so see what he does? Very, very detailed, detailed, detailed. And then he comes down here and he goes, that's still a bull. Like eight lines and it's still a bull. And so you're supposed to study that and kind of realize, wow, you can, you can take a very complex idea with all this flesh and shading and meat and detail, and you can still represent the same thing with a simple, minimal drawing, all right? You can take that away. And he doesn't do what he does later on in his life where he starts adding on weird stuff like an elephant trunk or some, you know, something weird. He doesn't do that either. So I think... When it comes to the church, you can do a Pablo Picasso on church. That you can ask two questions. Like, first of all, what doesn't belong? What's the elephant trunk that you shouldn't add? And there are things that people add to church that I say, that doesn't belong in church. That's good, that's interesting, but doesn't belong in church. But the other side is this, that you can look at church and say, what's the minimum that you need to be doing or about and still be a church? Like, what, what do you need to still be this thing that Jesus says, I'm gonna build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Do you need a building to be a church? No. Do you need a praise crew up here to be a church? As much as I like them and appreciate it? No. Do you need chairs to be a church? Now you can sit on the ground. I've been in many churches in India where it was cross-legged on a dirt floor when it was still church. Right? Okay, is a couple of dudes, maybe four or five, that get together Sunday morning and they go to the pub and they drink a beer and they smoke a cigar. And at some point they might talk about scripture. Is that church? Because that's pretty popular in some areas. Is that church? How about the Riverside Baptist Community Church? Where it's the dude that says, Matt, I don't like organized religion. I always tell them, then you'll love us. You'll totally love us. <laughs> Matt, I find God out in nature. 
So Sunday mornings, me and my buddies, we get together, we get the boat, get some worms, go out on the lake, go fishing. Matt's doing church to me. I said, that's not doing church, that's fishing. You're just fishing, that's all you're doing. How about CrossFit, is that church? Google New York Times and CrossFit. And the author, or the, I should say, the guy that began CrossFit, who was an atheist, was asked, is, is CrossFit a cult? And he's like, mm, yeah, we might be, actually. But we're gonna, we're gonna be the new church. We're gonna replace church. If you talk to people that are in CrossFit, what will they tell you? All about CrossFit, right? They're the best evangelists in the world. If you know someone who's in CrossFit, you know that they're in CrossFit because they're always talking about it. And they'll tell you like, CrossFit has transformed my life. It saved me from the sin of my spare tire, right? I have this CrossFit family. Wherever I go throughout the world, I can be with a CrossFit family. These guys keep me accountable. I'm like, man, you stole all that from Jesus. Give it back to him, (laughs) right? Sweating and yelling and throwing a kettlebell is awesome. Please do it, but it's not church. So when you strip down, like Pablo Picasso, what should you be left with? What are the lines that define church that you say, you have to have these. If you don't have these, it's not church. Well, Acts 2.42, I think gives us the very bare minimum. And I think you, you better have more than this because evangelism isn't here. Mission isn't in here. Giving to the poor isn't here. There's a lot of stuff that's missing, but I would say if you don't have these four, yeah, you're not church. You gotta have these four. And then you add on to detail and you flesh it out as you are supposed to in your context and in your culture. So this is what they did. This is the verse after the very first message is preached by the church. 3,000 people get saved. Now you've got 3,120 people. What are they going to do? They're gonna do church. And this is how. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. See the four lines? Apostles' teaching. The fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. So what are those? Well, first of all, the first one on the list is the apostles' teaching. What would that be about? I think you just have to go back into this chapter and look at what the apostle Peter does in the very first sermon preached. He quotes scripture and points to Jesus. That's what he does. This is what was said in the Bible. And by the way, it's about Jesus. The apostles teaching is scripture and the main topic is Jesus, right? Well, Matt, why do we need scripture like that? Why why is it so important? Why is it number one on this list? I'll give you some reasons. Number one, Hebrews 4.12 says this, that God's word is quick, it's sharp, it's powerful. And then it compares it actually to a surgeon's scalpel. It shapes us. It removes junk from us. It saves us. It helps us. That's what God's word does. Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, he would say God, God's word does these three things. Number one, it teaches us or instructs us. 
Very different from the teaching or instruction you'll receive at Oregon State or U of O or RCC or anyone else. And here's why. Tuesday, when those open back up, if you're going to them, go to that school and ask them, could I please find the Department of Reality here? Could I enroll in the School of Purpose? Could I take Why I'm Here 101? Those things aren't answered by science. They're answered by something else. They're answered by scripture. That it gives us those answers. It trains us. This is what you are. You, the, you are the Imago Dei. You're the image bearer of God. You were put here, Genesis chapter two, to rule and reign in his stead. That's what you're supposed to do. What's your purpose? To join in with Jesus in the renewal of all things, Matthew 19, 28. That's your purpose. Well, how am I to live like Jesus did? Not coming to be served, but to serve and to give your life for others. It, it, it answers those big, giant questions. And ultimately, those are the questions we want to be answered, right? Right, because I'm just a speck, surrounded by specks, living on a speck that circles a speck that's in a billion other specks. And this billion other specks is just a speck among billions of other specks. So what in the world do I expect? Well, this tells us right here. You should expect to join in with your king, the ruler and creator of the universe. You're gonna join in with him for all eternity, ruling and reigning all the specks. That's what you and I get to do. And that's answered right here. So it teaches us. Number two, it corrects us or protects us. And here's how. So I'm 46 years of age. We as a American culture, when it comes to protection, we've moved massively in those 46 years. So when I was little, 10, 11 years old, we had this massive car. It was a uh, 1962 Bonneville, Pontiac Bonneville. Just, it was, had its own zip code, just giant. Every once in a while, we'd have too many people in that car. So my job was, hey, Matt, get in the back. And I would get in that little area behind the back seats and the windshield, right? I'd just get stuffed up there. And it wasn't illegal. We never got pulled over. And I actually liked it because I could kind of stretch out and go to sleep up there if I wanted to, right? It wasn't illegal. Was it dangerous? Totally. If we got a head-in collision, I'm just going straight to the car out to the front windshield, right? No seatbelt laws back then. And when I was little, like the time I got up from school until the time it was dark, I was on my bike, riding my bike everywhere. Do you know what I never wore? Not once. We didn't, I didn't own a helmet, right? In fact, if I would have showed up with my helmet on to my buddies, they'd have been like, dude, what's on your head? Uh, it's a helmet. Why, man? Use your skull. Why do you think God gave it to you? You pansy, right? It's different. Now, all those things, I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad movement. Here's my favorite thing, the favorite protection I have today. It's on the side of Interstate 5 now, they put these bumps right? Because I am a spacey driver. I'll just start thinking. I'll, I'll forget I'm even driving. Like, brr, I'm driving. Oh, okay. Pay attention. Right. Okay. Okay. That's what God's word is. On the road of life, we can just get drifting and daydreaming and we can forget our purpose and what we're called to do. And all of a sudden it's the bump, 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 bump of God's word. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm called to be a servant. Oh yeah. I'm called to engage my, oh yeah. I can't tell you how many times. In the morning when I'm reading God's word or 
as I'm driving in my car, listening to the radio, or as I listen to a sermon, how I'm like, oh my goodness, I was drifting. Thank you for correcting me. Thank you for bump, 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 bumping me back into where I need to be. That's what God's word does. It corrects us, protects us. Then lastly, Paul says there in 2 Timothy 3, he says this, it trains us. And I've mentioned this a bunch. Training is different than a workout. A workout is for the guns. Training is to actually train your body to be something. So Malcolm Gladwell made very famous the 10,000 time rule, where he says, in order for something to actually become what you are, you need to do it 10,000 times. So if you want to hit a curveball, then you need to see that curveball 10,000 times because what happens is this, your brain doesn't have to think anymore. You just react. You become that. You gotta face that jab 10,000 times because when that 10,001 jab is thrown at you, you don't think about it. Your body just responds and gets us out of the way, right? That's what God's word is supposed to do. Train us. Maybe an easier illustration is riding a bike. So in the beginning, when you're training your kid to ride a bike, you're yelling instructions at him or her. Don't look at me, look at the road. Don't look down, look up. Keep your feet on the pedals, quit taking them off. Don't go too slow, don't go too fast. Keep your arms on the handlebars. Don't look at me, look at the road, right? And then one day what happens? Click. And then it's just like riding a bike. It's become flesh. It's become who they are. And all the rules are gone. Well, there's new rules now. Lige, you may not try to jump your mother's car. No. It's, it's what they become. It's second nature. That's what God's word is supposed to do. That we don't have to think about, oh, should I do that or not? No. It's our natural response, because God has written it deep into our hearts, is to respond the way that Jesus does. That's the ultimate goal, the training of God's word. All right? Brilliant. But Matt, I mean, come on. I've heard it all before. My son this last week said that to me. Dad, Wednesday night, I've heard all the stories, dad. It's probably true. He probably has. He's like, I could do it. I said, great, next Wednesday you're up, bud. He's like, no, I don't want to do that. (laughs) What about that? Okay, Peter, the guy who preached here in Acts chapter two, at the end of his life, he writes a book. And in 2 Peter 1.12, this is what he says. He says, I'm gonna keep reminding you of these things until you get established in them. That my job right now, Peter would say at the end of his life, I'm not gonna be brilliant. I'm not gonna wow you. I'm gonna remind you. Why do we need to be reminded? Because we're forgetful. You ever forgot your phone? You ever forgot your wallet? You ever forgotten why you went into a room? Like, why am I here? Maybe you're doing that right now. Why am I here again? You ever go to the store to buy something and you forget what you're supposed to buy and you're in the car halfway home, you're like, oh, that's what it is. Right? You ever forget where you park your car? Happened to me on Tuesday. So I had jury duty. I was actually jury selection, which I did not get selected. So I'm there all day long. And at lunch, I decided I'm gonna run over and have a meal at the gospel rescue mission, meet those guys. So I come out to get my truck. I'm all happy. I come to the parking lot. I'm like, my truck got stolen. Someone stole my truck. 
oh no, because Chad Hansen has truck stolen. So I'm thinking, happened to me too. And then I'm worried because I just got a new truck. I had a really old junkie truck. I'm like, has it become an idol? Did I need to get stolen? So I'm like starting to think, oh Lord, forgive me. I'm like, oh, it's over there. Oh, okay. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I still got my truck. Yes. It's not an idol. Yeah. <laughs> so random, man. We need reminding. Why? Because we forget stuff. And then he says, until you become established in them. Are there things you know that you don't do? I know I should do this, but I'm not doing it. Do you know that negativity kills you? Like the research is done. That when you're negative, your brain releases just a, a chemical cocktail that kills you. Most of us know that. Do we still become negative creeps at times? some gossip, some incident, some failure. And we're like, oh, we're at home, half gallon of Lucerne ice cream straight out of the container and Netflixing till 2 a.m. Even though you know, bad for you. Because we're not established in it. Most of us know this, that if you wake up at the same time every morning, it's the best thing you can ever do for your brain. Do you know that? Everyone's like, they don't know that. I'm like, yeah. Like most a clinical psychologist, the first thing they will do with somebody is give them good food to eat and tell them to get up the same time in the morning. Go to sleep whenever you want, but get up at the same time in the morning because that rhythm really gets your brain working correctly. My problem with that is Friday night, Matt, could care less about Saturday morning, Matt. I don't care about you, man. Do whatever I want. <laughs> I, I know that, but man, being established is something else. So Peter says, part of my job with God's word is just to keep reminding you because you forget until you get established in it, till it becomes flesh and it dwells in you and transforms you. So at Edgewater, God's word is real important. And it's always the topic is Jesus because that's what you see with Peter here in chapter one. Secondly, apostles teaching. And it says the fellowship. Wednesday, we may talk about this, but I'll just put it like this. Fellowship, it's a weird word. We don't really use it. You know, it's like Lord of the Rings. We don't use fellowship very often unless it's in church. It just means gospel friendships. They're not just friendships. There's a a gospel thing to them. How huge are these today? I've shared this, that there's a study called the Blue Zones, four places throughout the world where people live to be really old. And one of the key ingredients, friendships. Like it's huge. And then I went to a talk where the guy that did the blue zone research, he said this, loneliness, which is an epidemic in America, just Google loneliness. It's an epidemic in America. He said, it is the same as smoking 20 cigarettes every single day. Being lonely, same damage. I'm like, wow, I shouldn't have been. Because in chapter two of God's word, what do we get? God has created Adam, He's in a garden by himself. And what does God say? Bro, it's not good for you being alone here. It's like smoking a pack a day and you're immortal. I gotta help you. Here's a friend, right? That's Matt Heavily translation, chapter two. But guess what? As a culture, we are the most connected culture ever and we are the loneliest culture ever because you cannot make an app for good friendships. And young people, the the research is done I want social media is doing to kids. Just Google social media, loneliness, kids. Kids now, 14, whatever, 12 to like 18, 
They go on fewer dates than any other generation. They spend fewer time with friends than any other generation. And they spend more time in the room than any other generation. Hands down. Why? That's why. And it's killing them, sadly. It's this epidemic inside of our culture right now. And and I think I warned us about this about nine years ago. Remember that study that I mentioned about air conditioning in the South? Everybody remember that? I have to remind you like Peter, huh? I'm gonna put you in remembrance of this until you're establishing it. Okay, really quick. 10,000 times, okay. This is maybe four. I got a lot of ways to go. Okay, so go 1950s south. Man gets done with work. He comes home. It's hot. The most comfortable place for that man, front porch, sipping sweet tea with his buddies. Kids are playing in the front yard, playing in the yard, playing on the sidewalk, playing out in the street. Community. Brilliant. Been that way for a long time. But all of a sudden, you introduce air conditioning and TV. Man comes home from work. Most comfortable place in his house. Not the front porch anymore. Living room, TV dinner, air conditioning. Awesome, right? So what they say is this, AC with TV removed the family from community in the South. And I think you just look at the architecture of homes today and you can see it. I grew up in a home, 1111 Southwest Foundry, built in 1908, giant front porch on it. You walk through that house, out the back door, just steps, nothing else. No deck, nothing, steps. Go into a new subdivision. What do you see? Giant 3,000 square foot homes, big giant. And then it's almost funny because there's this tiny like porch attached to the front of it. Just big enough for two very fit Mormon missionaries. (laughs) It's a size. The construction people tell you, do you want a two or four Mormon missionary porch? (laughs) Right? But on the back of that home, what do you have? Man, huge deck big fence. And the front yards of newer homes are tiny. It's the house has pushed its way up to the front, little deck, just little porch, don't come here. Don't come here. And the back is a big giant yard with their own deck and a big fence. Because the very homes we live in have turned their back on community. That's what's happened to us. Okay. We don't have barbecues. We don't know our neighbors anymore, do we? Right. It used to be that if your neighbor was leaving for a while. He would tell you, how many have gone for two weeks? Would you wash my place? Does that happen anymore? No, part of it is that we don't trust our neighbors. They might come steal my stuff. Leave a car in the driveway. Man, those neighbors across the road, I don't trust them at all. Because we know them. They don't really, we don't really want to know them. We'll just go on our back deck, get our own little barbecue, do our own little thing, isolated from community, right? But here's the sad thing. The reason why this church was so brilliant was this key right here. They knew each other. They had fellowship with each other. I love it. We have what our culture desperately needs. It's water in a desert. But do we actually have it? I don't know. So I have a lady that I really admire. I try to read her when she writes articles. Her name is Rosario Butterfield. You might write that name down. She was a professor of English at Syracuse University, a lesbian, and she got saved. She wrote a book called My Trainwreck Conversion. It's brilliant. She's brilliant. She said this, 
She said, the hardest part about my conversion was not the sexual issues. It was the loneliness because my lesbian community did it better than the church I entered into. Man, I read that, I just broke my heart. How sad is that? The one thing that defines, one of the key minimal things that defines us, fellowship, man, we lack at it. We're weak at it. Like there are times that I just wanna be like forcing connection. You and you hold hands right now. Be friends, sit next to each other. <laughs> it would get weird, but I don't know. Sometimes just try something for crying out loud. So we're doing community groups and that's, that's a huge step. I think it's a good step. But I think in our text, we get the lowest bar, easiest way of all. It's this very next thing, right? It says they broke bread. And it's interesting, there's not an and in there. It's a different kind of, it's almost like fellowship and breaking bread are actually linked. And some people say it's communion. Okay, I got no problem with that. We do communion every Sunday because Jesus says, do it often in remembrance of me. So I think, okay, we'll do it. I could be breaking bread. But I think it's more than that. I think it's meals with people. Because I just read the life of Jesus. And what did Jesus do all the time? He ate food with people. He broke the cardinal rule, right? He invited himself over to other people's homes. He's like, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm having dinner at your house tonight. Zacchaeus is like, oh, great. Well, I guess you're God, so you can kind of do that. <laughs> All right, fine. Hey, honey, I know we're doing a remodel. I know the house is a mess. Jesus is coming over. What? I didn't invite him. He invited himself. I'm sorry, right? It's awesome. I wouldn't do that unless you're Jesus and you're not, okay? It's breaking bread. They had meals together. And how easy, how simple is that? It's just simple hospitality. Come over to my house and eat. You wanna break loneliness? Right there. And I think it's awesome that as a pastor, I get invited to a lot of places. Thank you, I appreciate that. But do you know who needs to be invited? Rosaria Butterfield. The person who's new here. The person that's coming into this community and being like, what in the world is this? I had lunch with this guy and he asked this. He said, why do you guys sing songs? What, what, what in the world are you doing? He was brand new, never been church, never gone to church. All of a sudden he comes in here, believes, and he's like, why do you sing songs? That's so weird to me. Now I've grown up in church. I'm like, well, actually, that is weird. Imagine a CEO of a business getting his board together. They're all gathered around a table. And he's like, hey, before we get into what we're going to talk about today, I'd like to sing a song. <laughs> Join in with me if you know the words. Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. Let's go. <laughs> Hit it, band. <laughs> right? We'd be like, hey, that's strange. But we're here and we don't, we don't realize people have these questions. Why do the kids go there? I don't get that. Well, they don't have to. They can stay with you. Well, you know, all these, why do you guys do this stuff? And what they need is a friend who can answer those questions and walk with them and help them. Just simple, breaking of bread. Come have a meal with me. What are kids super good at? Inviting their friends over to your house, right? I've got five kids, two foster kids. My house is like, it's crazy. Like people, just kids everywhere. There's like a refugee camp. I'll show up and be like, dude, what are you doing here? It's like, I don't know, but there's a bunch of kids here. So I just showed up. All right, man, have a meal. Right? I mean, my bill is through the roof right now, feeding kids. 
fine. They're really super good at that. What, do our, what are adults terrible at? Inviting people over to their house. So at some point, as we mature, we all of a sudden switch like the home. Deck on the back, no more porch on the front. And if we don't fight that intentionally, we will become a statistic. We'll be a blue zone statistic. We'll be killing ourselves. You might as well start smoking cigarettes as well. Just, you know, who cares? I'm not telling you to smoke cigarettes. Please know that. <laughs> but it's gotta be intentional. When was the last time you had somebody new in your home? Week? Month? Year? Decade? Century. Man, break that. How easy does God's word make it? Hey, it's not preach a sermon to them. Explain to them propitiation. It's none of that. It's have them over and eat some food. Right? How easy is that? Do we like to eat food? Yeah. Right? Use that as a strength for Jesus. Come over, eat food with me. Super, super easy. Invite people over. One of the core lines of this early church was fellowship around a table eating food. And the last one, prayer. So two weeks ago, we did a little bit more on prayer. I won't do much on this, but here's what we do here. You have a little bulletin at the bottom of it. You can fill out your prayers, put it in a basket. We collect those prayers. And in this service, we pray over the prayers from this service. And the ones that, that do not get prayed for, they go out on a table back there. You can grab them on your way out. Our hope is you put them on your dashboard and throughout the week, you pray over that. I go to a lot of churches. I've never seen a church do what we do when it comes to prayer. Just stop everything. We gotta pray. The reason why we do it, right here. We feel it's one of the basic four that minimally you've got to have this, minimally. So these are four things. Made this church in the book of Acts fabulous. By chapter four, there are 10,000 adults that belong to this church. It's radically changing their community. Now I'm going to guess that most churches in America at some level, try to do these four. But are most churches in America like the church in the book of Acts? Sadly, no. Every year, 8,000 churches shutter their doors. And I bet if we went to that church a week, a month, a year before they shuttered, I bet they were doing at some level all four of these. Since Edgewater has existed in Grants Pass, I know of personally 10 churches that have closed in our community. And they were doing all four of these. So what's the secret sauce? What made this church so dynamic? What were they doing that we weren't? I listened to probably 15 sermons on this chapter, probably read 20 commentaries. I was looking for that specific question, like, well, okay, who's gonna address this? None of them did. So I'll give you my two cents worth. Here's why I think they were so powerful and dynamic. Number one, they realize that it's church that is the instrument that God will use to transform the world. Nothing else. 
not a parachurch, not something else. Jesus said, it's the church that I will build and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's church. But, but secondly, it's this little word here. It's at the beginning of verse 42. It says they devoted themselves. They were devoted to preaching and teaching God's word, to hearing and listening to God's word. They were devoted to the fellowship, gospel friendships, having people over at their home to praying. They were devoted. I love that word. Not a law, not a rule. It's they desired it, they wanted it. What are we devoted today, today? What are we devoted to today? The gym, a lot of people are devoted to the gym. Our dogs, a lot of devotion to dogs. I tell people, tongue in cheek, I say, I wish our foster care kids were cared for as well as we do for our own dogs. Because we'd, we'd change our world. We'd change, we'd change grand spats like that. We're devoted to them. Our jobs, totally. We're devoted to athletics, right? From the professional all the way down to kinder soccer. Okay, you ever done kinder soccer with your kids? It's unbelievable. 5,000 people show up on a Saturday morning and it's pandemonia devoted to this thing. Get my kid there. He's the next Pele. Scouts for the Ducks are here. He's three, but man, he's got talent. We are devoted to that 100%. Food, we're devoted to food now. Like to me, I can't believe what's happened with food. Like there's a, now it's like people argue about, should we keep the kosher diets of the Old Testament? You got a whole new kosher diet, man. Like you can't eat these things in the morning, eat this only at lunch, eat this at nighttime. I gotta be catonic, so I gotta do this to my system and it's gotta last for 28 days and I'm counting all my calories. And you're like, dude, you got your own new Torah. Wow, when did that happen? Right, I like part of it, like bacon and avocados are good for you. I'm like, that's brilliant. Those combined, okay, I'll be a foodie for those. We're devoted to those things. How about church? We devoted to church. Here's the numbers. If there's 100 people in church, 50 more are supposed to be there. That really many, majority of Christians now go to church twice a month. And a vast amount go one time a month, 12 times a year. Okay, that's all I can give you. I can go once a month, give you about 12 hours a year. That's it, right? Different kind of devotion. I never saw that kinder soccer. I never showed up for Elijah's kinder soccer game and half the team's not there. Never happened, man. Not one time. Could make it to that, no problem. But church, hmm, I don't know. The word devoted here in the Greek, it actually, you could just as easily translate it uh, persevered because it has in it the connotation of difficulty, that they had to overcome difficulty to do this. It wasn't like, ah, oh, this is all ice cream and strawberries. It was, no, we had to make decisions in line with our devotion. You could use it for raising children. It takes devotion, perseverance to raise kids, right? Because it's gonna get hard. It's marriage. Marriage takes devotion because you're gonna have to persevere through some rough patches. They're coming for all of us. And if, it's, if you don't have perseverance, if you don't have that devotion, you will fail. It's those things. They were devoted. 
So my deeper question is, why? Why were they so devoted to this thing? Here's why. God showed up. It's Acts chapter two. God showed up. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, when I've prayed over this church 10,000 times, maybe not that many, a bunch, is 1 Corinthians 14, 25. It's Paul talking to a church who had got out of control on the gifts and gone kind of crazy. So Paul is bringing them back to balance. And in the balance, he says, here's the reason why I'm saying this to you guys. So that when the believer comes in here, his heart is confounded. He repents and he says of a truth, God's in this place. That's my favorite verse. What's the one thing I want for Edgewater? When people come in here, they say this, of a truth, God is in this place. That when the praise ascends, God is enthroned on those praises and people say, man, I sense God's presence here. When prayers go up, God says, my house shall be a house of prayer. I wanna live there because they pray. I'm coming there. When the word is opened, God's name is glorified and God shows up. That's what I want. Because you can have all the right ingredients. I've been to churches, man, they got it all. Hip worship, right environment. They're not in a school. <laughs> they got funny preaching. Man, the kid's wing is like Disneyland. Got facial recognition software for those kids. Identifies them, man, tags them. If it's their birthday, it sings happy birthday to them. They don't have a line. They go down a slide. It's three stories high. Spits them out into a swimming pool full of gummy worms. They're like, I love church. <laughs> man, you sit down in your seat. It's literally your seat. You've saved it on an app. And out of the armrest comes your favorite drink. You're like, Yes. <laughs> And the whole thing is like, because oh, God's not there. Jesus puts it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. You can do all this stuff, all your preparation. You can fast, you can give, and you can pray. But if you're doing it for the wrong motivation, God's not desperate. He's like, keep it. I don't want any part of that. But when you do it for the right motivation, God says, I'll show up. I'll show up. Why were these people so devoted? Because God showed up. Your devotion will be in proportion to God's presence. So one of my prayers every Sunday morning is I pray 1 Corinthians 14, 25. God, would you show up? God, purify my motives. God, cleanse me from unrighteousness. God, may I want you because without you, this is just a waste of time but you show up. And when you experience God's presence, what happens is this. You finally realize Revelation 4.11, that's what I was created for. That's what I was created for. You come in here and your heart is healed. You come in here and you know your sins are forgiven. You come in here and your weariness just is taken away and you're set free in a way that you could not imagine. The captives are set free. That's what I pray for. I'm asking you to join with me. In 2018, every Sunday morning, I want you to pray 1 Corinthians 14, 25. God, when I show up to church this day, may I be purified. May my motives be correct and may I meet you. May I say of a truth, God was there this morning. Because when that happens, you become devoted. You become devoted. That God takes 
these four simple things, these four lines, if you would, teaching, fellowship, hospitality, breaking of bread, communion, and prayer. And he breaks them like the kids, four, five loaves and two fish. And all of a sudden it's multiplied and thousands are fed and blessed and prepared and sent out like an army. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. We need to come this afternoon to the table. And a professor of mine at school said this. He said, communion can be when the veil between heaven and earth grows thin. That there's something in this, 1 Corinthians 11, that can happen in the very act of taking communion, participating in this thing, that you step into God's presence. But it happens by faith. It's not because of some cracker or some juice. It's because of the presence of our king. And you're coming to sit at the table with your king in his presence. And that's how we do this every Sunday. Jesus, we need your presence. That's what we need. If not for your presence, let's shut the door and go home. So Jesus, this day, I pray that you would forgive me for being devoted to so many other things. I will walk out of these doors this day and I'll get into my car and I'll go home and I'll find something else to be devoted to. Forgive me. Cleanse me, Lord. I know it's like drinking salt water. It's just killing me. And meanwhile, you, the author of life, are offering to me water that if I drink of, I'll never thirst again. Forgive me for walking away from the source of life. Purify my motives, Lord. May Edgewater be a place that rolls out the welcome mat for you, for your presence, for your working, for your spirit. Strip away from us anything that we've added that would detract from you. Purify us. I pray as we take the cup, take your broken body, I pray that you would meet us at this table. That hearts that are hurt would be comforted. That lives that are being wrecked by our enemy who wants to steal and to kill and to destroy would be put back together. That marriages that are under attack would be buttressed by your power. That lives that have grown stale and are drifting would be set back on course finding purpose and meaning and value. That individuals who long for your presence would sense you. So we say, come, meet us at this table. We pray this in your name.
Amen.